Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks again for listening. As always, special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. They give us the recording space. They are wonderful partners. We love working with them. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your favorite podcasting app. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anything you can find. And every time you rate and review us, it really helps us out. It helps other people see this podcast. And as always, if you have feedback, be sure to send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the show, we had Attorney General Mike DeWine. What did you think of him? Well, so our previous episode, we had the other, uh, the former Ohio Attorney General, Mark Dan, big personality, also big problems. I think maybe sometimes those things can go together. You know? Big reputation. Right. Well, so Mike DeWine uh, has been in Ohio politics for a long time, and I think kind of his defining characteristic as a politician is he's been very careful, therefore, as an interviewee, uh, pretty careful too. So he's not going to like set the, set the world on fire excite the masses, that kind of stuff. But, you know, he is also somebody who's very relevant to Ohio politics. And we wanted to make sure that we had a chance to kind of put him on the record and also give our listeners an opportunity to hear him in his own words. Yeah, people will be able to hear when he doesn't really want to answer a question because he doesn't answer the question. He answers his own question that he'll ask. That said, yeah, like Andrew said, he's still a wealth of knowledge on Ohio politics. I mean, he's obvi- he's ran for just about every position yeah, you pretty pretty much everything. I think I, mean, I think now's the time to say that he is a current Republican gubernatorial candidate. Yeah, for the yeah, for those who don't know, um yeah, Republican not uh, candidate for governor. Yeah, front runner and you know, I mean very likely could end up winning the whole thing. Yeah. And but I mean he's run for what? He's run for state senate, he's been a local prosecutor, he's been lieutenant governor, he's been a senator, he's been a congressman, he's been attorney general and now he's running for governor. So He's, he's, I believe it's 40 years in politics, right? 42 years. 42 yeah. years in politics. So he's got a lot to say about the state because Ohio has changed a lot since, you know, his first campaign, which I was, I believe was in 76. And yeah, the big red machine, whenever they won the world series, yeah. uh, that was, you know, Mary Taylor, his Republican opponent has put that in an ad. And, uh, you know, in, in 2018, I mean, there's like, you know, think about it 10 years ago, it was a completely different political landscape, let alone 40 years ago. So with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and listen to the interview that Andrew and I did with Attorney General Mike DeWine. All right, Mike, thank you so much for joining us here. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, so you're you're probably one of the most well-known politicians in Ohio at this point. You've been on the ballot a lot of times. Um, but I don't, you know, for me, I've been covering politics for about, I don't know, five years. I'm young. I don't actually know that much about your background. I've read, done some research for this, but Something that I think is interesting is that you grew up in Yellow Springs in the 1960s and you turned out to be a Republican. So can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your, your background and your family? Sure. Um, my wife, Fran, uh, my future wife and I actually both grew up in, in Yellow Springs. Uh, we met in, met in first grade, uh, had our first date in, in, in seventh grade. Um, it is considered to be a pretty liberal community. And Fran always says that uh, I really learned how to debate in in high school because it was everybody in the class versus Mike DeWine, and uh, there's there is certainly some some truth in that. Um, but I think also you know anybody who lived in Yellow Springs, there is a uh, I think a strong respect for the First Amendment. Uh, there is a belief in very active political debate. Uh, the community has great civic 
participation population I think is about 4,000 but it's you know has a people are engaged in in, in government uh, if you read the Yellow Springs news um, you know sometimes there'll be 10 letters to the editor so it's 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 that kind of a active involvement and so some people look at that and say oh you know Mike DeWine you're you're a Republican you're conservative and you grew up in this liberal town but you know, it, there is some, uh, I think, sense in all of it. Uh, my my grandparents on my mother's side, my grandfather was an English professor at uh, at Antioch. Uh, on the other side, uh, our family was in the seed business, wholesale seed company. Uh, started with my grandparents back in the 1920s. They had a, a feed store right downtown, and that grew into a seed company. Uh, by the time my dad came back from World War II, it was a, a wholesale seed company. So what we did, uh, and I worked in there as a kid, and my future wife, Fran, worked in there as well during high school. So I would work, uh, you know, in the, in the plant or, or, or in the office. Uh, spent a lot of time loading trucks, loading boxcars with, with seed. Um, and it was, it was a, a wholesale seed company. So what we did is we sold to f- farmers elevators that used to dot Every little town in Ohio used to have a farmer's elevator where the farmers took their grain in in the fall, and then in the spring they bought their seed, they brought bought their twine. So our goal was to sell to as, as many of these elevators as as we could. So, you know, that kind of small business background, I think, is important in understanding what a small business person faces, some of the challenge that, that they face. Uh, I remember my grandmother, uh, it was really a family business, so my my grandparents were in there. When I was growing up, my grandparents were in there. My parents were in there. Uh, my uncle was in there. My great uncle was in there. And so really a, a family business. My grandmother, whose name was Alice, ran the, ran the office. And uh, I, I just, you know, there's never any doubt when you walked in, in there that Alice DeWine was in charge of the office. But she routed the trucks and she she was great, great on the phone. But the point of my story is that, you know, she... It seemed like almost every day was complaining about crazy government regulations uh, and things that the government was doing that to her, you know, made made no sense. And I, I kind of jokingly tell people that, uh, you know, if if she was alive today, she wouldn't believe some of the some of the, uh, you know, how difficult sometimes it is for small business. But so I come with a, with that background um, and, you know. Again, coming out of Yellow Springs, I, I guess some people think is kind of funny. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't carry Yellow Springs. I lose Yellow Springs. Uh, Fran and I, after we, uh, after I got out of law school, we bought a house uh, not far from Yellow Springs, five six miles from Yellow Springs, but it actually happens to be in the Cedarville School District. And that's uh, um, certainly is a is a, a much more conservative uh, uh, community. And uh, but we sort of live in both places. I mean, we, we live in, in Cedarville, but, you know, my parents were in Yellow Springs. Fran's mom is still alive. She's in Yellow Springs. We have uh, grandkids and, and kids who, who live in Yellow Springs as well. So how did you, uh, you might think that you might end up in the family business, but you took a different career path. So how did that come to be? You know, my family was never involved in politics, although uh, discussions at the dinner table always involved current events and what was going on. And, and yeah, uh, you know, Fran says that uh, we got married between our second and third year. At, at, we were both students at Miami University, and uh, she jokes, or maybe she's not joking, that uh, uh, 
we got married uh, under false pretenses, my false pretenses, because I thought I was going to be a school teacher then. So I was a education major at Miami, uh, started as a business major, switched over to education, uh, thought what I wanted to do is, is to teach social studies, teach government, teach history uh, in, in high school. Uh, that's what my degree is. But, you know, in my senior year, I decided, well, maybe law school is something that, that I should do. Maybe that's something that will, will work for me and that, that I would like to do. So you know, I applied to some law schools and ended up going to Ohio Northern Law School, a small uh, school in, in, in Ada, Ohio, in the western part of the state. And I liked it. I liked the law. And so I never, I never really taught other than student teaching for, uh, I guess, about four months. I heard uh, something kind of scandalous about your, uh, your time in junior high that uh, Fran actually managed the campaign of the person who ran against you for eighth grade president. Is that, is well, that true? Well, that's her story. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember she managed it. And of course, her story to me now is that secretly she, because it was a secret ballot, that she actually voted for me. It was like a double That's her story thing. anyway. So, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, I actually won and, and, you know, maybe it was Fran's vote that did it. Who knows? I read when in preparing for this that you were uh, that you did you quit the Greene County Prosecutor's Office after your boss tapped your dictaphone. Is that right? well? It's an old old story. Um, you know, I, I in, in all fairness to the boss uh, Nick Carrera, um, I learned a lot from him. I learned how to try cases, how to prosecute cases, uh, and so I do owe him uh, certainly owe him that. Uh, but. I did find a, a listening device in, in my office, and um, I quit. Uh, you know, he was responsible for the listening device, and, and so I quit, and actually two other assistant prosecutors walked out the same day and set up my own, uh, you know, we set up our own private practice after that. So, but then you ended up running against him. And I did. I did. I ran, I ran uh, against him, and, um, you know, it was, uh, I guess, a year later. Uh, that I announced that I was running against him, and, and of course, I, I won the race. Um, it was not a great uh, Republican year. It was 1976, so it was, a, it was you know, an election that followed right on the heels of, of Watergate, and it was the, the year that uh, Jimmy Carter was elected. And getting elected tapped president. is kind of Nixonian, right? I mean, that's... Pardon me? Getting, getting wiretapped, that's sort of like Nixonian, right? Well, yeah, it was just, it was strange. You know, yeah, it was, but, you know... It was something that I was very indignant about and thought was wrong, and so I quit. So when did you decide to run for office, and kind of what prompted you to get into, you know, elected life? In yeah, general? I suppose that, you know, that um, incident prompted me to run, certainly prompted me to run for, for prosecuting attorney, So you, and, and which was my first office. Yeah. And, and so I guess the re- sort of the rest is history, but I, I love being a prosecutor. Uh, Fran will tell you, and... and it tells people that if you really want to understand Mike DeWine, you, you have to understand that he at heart is still a, a, a prosecuting attorney. And, you know, it was a, a transformative time. I mean, if you, you kind of look back on your life and think of the things that really have an impact on your life. And, you know, you start with your parents uh, and, and their impact. You start with, you know, the fact that I grew up in a, in, in a seed, seed company, a small business. But the time I spent as a prosecutor, the little over two years I spent as an assistant prosecutor, and then the four years I spent as the elected prosecutor was very formative uh, for me. And I think it was a, a perfect background for what I have, have done since. Because as a county prosecuting attorney, you 
you, you see every problem in your community. Everything that is wrong comes across your desk. You know, first of all, you do all the felony prosecutions. Um, in those days, we did some of the DUI prosecutions as well. But then you're the civil lawyer for the county. So, you know, you're giving advice to the to the uh, county commissioners. Uh, if the county gets sued, if there's something civilly goes on, you know, it's your office that handles that. So you really get a, a, a very quick education about your county and, and some of the things that, that are going on there. So it was a, a great experience for me. And, and just it, 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 to me, it, it is something that I continue to think about and refer back to, you know, as I face problems, as I face problems later in the U.S. Senate, uh, I looked down from the framework of, of, of a prosecuting attorney and, and what I learned then. And I do the same thing today, of course, as, as the attorney general uh, of Ohio. And, and you know, f- frankly, if I hadn't had that background as a prosecutor, I suspect I never would have run, run for attorney general because part of being attorney general is running a crime lab, uh, you know, that serves the police and serves the, uh, the sheriffs uh, and serves the county prosecuting attorneys. Are there any like uh, particular cases that are most memorable that you remember from your time there? Well, one of the things that we we really wanted to do when I became prosecutor uh, was that there had not been any rape convictions for some some time, and there had been rape cases, but no convictions. And you know, I decided that. This is something that we really needed needed to work on, and so we started working really extensively with the victims. And this was really before the victim rights movement was moving forward. Right before that, and so you know there were no victim advocates in the in the prosecutor's office today in Greene County and, and most prosecutors' offices. There's victim advocates, and and victims are really helped. To, throughout the whole stage of the process. In those days, it did not occur. And so what, what uh, my, my friend and I did, who was my first assistant, Bill Skink, uh, when we would have a sexual assault case, you know, we would you know, work very hard with, with the victim and, and get her prepared for the, for the trial. Trial can be traumatic uh, for, the, for the victim. And I think particularly it can be traumatic for a sexual assault victim. And so, you know, we would work with that victim, get to know her, uh, you know, try to establish a, a basis of trust that she would have in, in, in us. And we would do things like, you know, even go up into the courtroom at night uh, and, you know, put her on the stand and, and just get her used to the, the environment there. So very proud of the fact that we were able to get convictions in, 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 in some rape cases uh, who are really the county had not seen very many convictions in rape cases uh, before that. Um, you know, if you're a county prosecuting attorney, you you end up with a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stories. And some of the uh, drug investigations we did were some of the the people we investigated. Frankly, were were quite quite interesting people. Even in a place like Greene County, you wouldn't necessarily think of that being a hotbed, hotbed of drug activity in the 70s. So maybe I wasn't around. So yeah, know. you know, in those days, Greene County was about 130,000 population. And so what it really was is, is on, on the western side, it was a suburb of Dayton. Uh, we didn't like to think of ourselves as a suburb of Dayton, but, you know, that's really what it was. And then, it, but over on the eastern side, it was still very rural, uh, very 
couple of farms. And so it was a, a, a very interesting county to, to represent and to be the prosecutor for. And, you know, I, I think, frankly, when I became an assistant prosecutor, the biggest shock I got was what people did to kids uh, with physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse. I mean, just things that were hard for me, particularly the sexual abuse, uh, just hard for me to understand and, and, you know, really didn't have a clue that that was going on um, in our county. And, and so to me, that was the biggest, I think, the, the, the biggest surprise. I read an article that described you as naturally shy. Is that true? And then how does someone who's shy end up getting involved in, you know, running for office? Yeah, I, I tell you, um, my my future wife, when we first started dating, Fran, uh, was probably the shyest girl in the class. Uh, uh, I was I was somewhat reserved, I guess, uh, but uh, I had enough nerve in sixth grade to go up to walk uptown and to uh, uh, buy a Whitman sampler of, of chocolates and a, and a silver cross and actually go to her door and, and knock on her door and give them to her. And I think she was quite embarrassed. So somehow I, I got enough guts to, to, to do that. But, you know, when, when you get involved in running for office, you have to over, overcome that. And I remember that the county sheriff, who was a friend of mine, when I announced that I was running, told me, you know, Mike, the way you win is to go knock on every door in the county. And uh, we ended up, I don't, I know we didn't knock on every door, but Fran and I and our kids ended up knocking on, uh, we think about 18,000 doors and talking to people. But I remember the, f- the first day I did that, I drove down to Spring Valley, which is a very small little, little community uh, in the southern part of, of the county. And uh, I, I'd picked it because it was small, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to start knocking on doors here. I can, you know, get that, get Spring Valley done. But I remember driving around the block time after time, uh, trying to get up the nerve to park the car and actually start knocking on doors. And it was, I think reporters have had that experience, too. <laughs> but, you know, you do it because that's what you do. And, and you know, if you, if you guys want to get the story, you got to go talk to people and uh, who, who may not want to talk to you. And, and I had to go knock on doors to people who maybe really didn't want to see me at the door. Uh, but... but it was, it, you know, it, it took a while, but, you know, I'm not saying I overcame the shyness. I mean, I tell you, when I still, when I walk into a room, I, you know, take a minute, okay, now we're going to plunge in and start talking to, talking to people and shaking hands. I like people and I, I, I like it. So once I get started doing it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. But, you know, that, I think that, that shyness uh, that Fran and I had, um, led to the cookbooks. Uh, we were out that first time running for county prosecuting attorney, and uh, uh, we would go out at, at, at usually in the mid-afternoon or after, after school and when we thought people would be home, and we, we would knock on doors for a few hours. And uh, one night, I remember, we got back in the car, and uh, we, had four, we only had four kids then. And uh, usually we would take the kids with us. Fran would take two kids. I would take two kids, and one would go on one side of the street and one on the other. We got back in the car one night, and, you know, we'd been doing this for some time. And Fran looked at me, and she says, okay, you know, if you ever run for office again, uh, I'm going to make something that 
we can hand out to people that will make them smile when they get it and that they will actually keep. And I said, well, look, we're, we're handing out my, my literature. And she says, well, exactly. She says, I'm watching them drop it in, drop it into a, to the trash can. And she says, you know, I'm going to make a cookbook. And I kind of blew that off. But uh, four years later, when I ran for, for state Senate, Fran made the, made the first cookbook. And, and she, again, you know, is working on one for, for this campaign. Yeah, she, she handed, ca- I, at the Lake County Republican Party dinner last night, she handed me a recipe. So that's still part of the playbook. Yeah. It's part, it, well, it's, it, it's kind of, I mean, in all seriousness, it's kind of an icebreaker. I mean, you know, when you knock on doors, uh, you know, the, people come to the door and, you know, if you're selling something, they don't, re- they don't want to really talk to you. And if you tell them that, uh, you know, you're running for office, sometimes they'll, that's okay. And then sometimes it's not. But if you have something to hand them, and, you know, this is what I always say, look, this is not my literature. This is Fran's cookbook. And you'll probably find it a lot more useful than you will my literature. And so it, it, it's kind of a still an icebreaker for two people who um, are probably still kind of shy. So have Ohioans been secretly electing Fran's cookbook to office all these years? Well, it's an integral part uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of, I guess, who we are. At least we're identified that way. You know, a lot of times people, uh, you know, kind of identify us with Fran's cookbook and with our annual ice cream social, so, which is, a, again, kind of started back uh, in, in when I was running for county prosecuting attorney and Fran said, you know, I'm tired of us doing fundraisers that people can't really bring their kids to. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And she says, well, I, let's do an ice cream social. I said, well, I don't know what that is. What is that? She says, real simple. She said, you make the ice cream, you crank the ice cream, I'll make the pies, and we'll have kids games, and that's what it'll be. And so the first year we did it, and I don't know, we thought it was a great crowd. We had about 150 people, and uh, we've continued that over the years. And last summer, I think we had, when I made my announcement that I was running for governor, we had uh, about 2,500 people, and we we still do it in our, in our front yard. Uh, I no longer crank the ice cream. Uh, we use Young's Jersey Dairy Ice Cream, which is a dairy uh, close close to us. Um, and, but Fran still makes the pies. Uh, she and some friends get together usually a week before and, and, and make the pies and Fran makes, makes all the crust, but the, uh, their friends, her friends will peel the apples and pit cherries or whatever, whatever has to be done. So that's just, again, it's kind of what we do and it gives us, a, a, you know, behind that, it really though, it, it does give you an opportunity to talk with people and to see people and interact with people in a, in a very, very personal way. I mean, you know, when I first started running statewide, one of the things that we discovered that we love doing is going to ethnic festivals in Cleveland and in this, this part of the state. And uh, you, as you know, in the summer, you can go to certainly one or two or three every weekend. And, uh, you know, you get great food and it's a relaxed atmosphere and it's the opportunity to interact with people and find out what's on people's mind and what they care about. And it's, it's kind of like a fair. I, you know, we like to go to f- county fairs because, again, people are m- more informal there and they're more likely to talk with you. And, they're, frankly, they're more likely when they see you just to tell you what they think. Uh, and for someone running for office and someone who you know wants to get into office and stay in touch with people and find out what they really care about, what they're worried about, you know, a county fair is a great opportunity to do that. A, a, a church supper is a great opportunity to do that. Some, 
you know, an ethnic uh, event. Uh, is those are just great opportunities to in, stay in touch with people, and there's there's not a barrier there. The people don't feel there's a barrier. They, 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 you, you know, you're much more approachable in that environment than you are someplace else. So I, it, it's I think a very good thing, and we're very comfortable doing that. get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So Mike DeWine has been in politics, as you guys said, for a really long time. One of the highlights of his career was his uh, time in Congress. What did he have to say about that? You definitely get the sense that he has a deep respect for Congress as an institution, um, both the U.S. House and the Senate. He, I mean, he really... He seemed to have a fondness for it, that's for sure. And he he did go through some weird times there. I mean, he had uh, what he was there for. He was in Congress for Iran-Contra. Yeah, and that, that was one of my favorite moments of the interview, actually, was you asked him about yeah. serving on the Iran-Contra committee. He's like, oh, Iran-Contra. And like he threw his hands up in the air. You, you couldn't hear that. But it was like, <laughs> uh, that, I, I think like he's somebody who's very prepared, and I, I'm not sure that he, he necessarily is expecting that question, especially you know from somebody our age. I think that does illustrate, though, that you know because he's, he's got to be the most politically experienced guy you know, probably in the state, frankly. Yeah, but just think about it. I mean, so he was elected a county prosecutor the same year Jimmy Carter became president. So it was like the Malays, like the put on your sweater guys, like whatever, you know. And then he was in Iran-Contra, like he saw Reaganomics, like, you know, he, he saw the I can't recall, like that whole thing. But you think about a lot of politicians and being on the Iran-Contra committee, that might be like, that's that's the big story of their career. You know, oh, right. I, was, I was in Congress during Iran-Contra and I was on the committee. And it's like... That's not even halfway through his career. And then career he got elected senator. Point. And you then know. he got, yeah, well, then and he got elected, yeah. Lieutenant governor, right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I got a sense that he has a very deep affinity both for, you know, just the institution itself. And I think one of the more interesting conversations we actually had was about the filibuster. I know the filibuster is getting really in the weeds for, you know, this podcast. Yeah, Donald Trump, you know, tweets about the filibuster sort of in his own way, you know, on the regular. For those who don't know, uh, Mike DeWine was one of the gang of 14 back in, I believe it was 2006, um, somewhere around that time. They basically preserved the, the filibuster for... Um, judicial nominees during the Bush administration. And now, you know, since then, the Senate's gone nuclear twice. Harry Reid did it in 2013 with uh, lower judicial court nominees. And of course, in 2017, 
Mitch McConnell pulled the trigger and went nuclear with Supreme Court nominees. So the filibuster is slowly kind of eroding away, and he he did seem like he kind of wanted it around still. Yeah, and what it, what it boils down to is that unless you get it, you're allowed to debate indefinitely, you know, unless you get sixty votes, and so it basically requires uh, unless one party really controls the Senate, which hasn't been the case historically, it requires some degree of bipartisan compromise. I don't know. I, I, it, for for a discussion about the filibuster, which is an inherently boring topic. Yeah, we've been he, filibustering a little bit about yeah, the filibuster. Right? Um, he, it was actually really interesting with him. So I, I, I think I think the listeners are going to love it, but. Uh, with that, let's get to more of the interview with Mike DeWine. So from the prosecutor's office, you ended up serving, uh, you know, one term in the state Senate and then moving on to Congress for four terms, correct? That's right. I served actually two years in the state Senate. And Bud, Bud Brown, who was our congressman forever, uh, decided to run for governor, which meant that there was an open seat. Uh, yeah, I used to work for Brown Publishing, so that's... Right. Did, oh, did you really? Yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're familiar with the... With, with with the Brown family, I mean, they had, as, as you know, a, a large number of newspapers at one point. And uh, uh, so Bud had been our congressman. He was running for governor. So that meant that there was an open seat. Uh, and, you know, I, I ran. There were six of us in the, in the primary who ran. And I, I was able to win and then won in the general election. That's kind of an interesting time to be in Congress with the whole Reagan revolution, right? What would you kind of take away from yeah, the time? Yeah, you know, that? I got there really... Um, two years into the Reagan administration. And, and it's interesting, having gone through an election that year, that, you know, people look now look back at Reagan. They now look back at Reagan as being a very popular president. But I will tell you, in 1982, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism of, of Reagan. Uh, the term Reaganomics was used. And if I recall correctly, in October, October 1, when the unemployment figures came out for Ohio, I think uh, we hit 10 percent. It may not have been 10 percent. Whatever it was, it was high. And so it was really a a pretty much a Democrat year that year. Uh, But I was in a, uh, you know, a a fairly Republican district uh, and I I was elected. And so I went to I went to Congress, you know, two years into the into the Reagan eight, eight years. And, uh, you know, it was, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, a, it was a very, it was a very interesting time. It's interesting you mentioned Reagan not being a necessarily the most popular guy two years into his term, considering what we see now with the numbers and Donald Trump and all that. I mean, do you see any similarities between like the two administrations, you know, given that you kind of had an up close look at Reagan? You know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of dangerous to make those comparisons because you have a, a, you know, a very different time and you have a, you know, different, different period in, in, in time. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I tried to do when I was in Congress um, and, and frankly had a better ability to do it in the Senate than I did in the House. When I was in the House, you know, we were in the minority party um, and that's just, it's just difficult. Um, but when you're in the United States Senate, even if you're in the minority party, you, you can certainly have, you know, a great deal of influence. And, you know, w- what I did in, in the Senate, I, I went to the Senate with the idea I wanted to do things and, and, and make things happen and get things done. And, you know, if you go into my office in uh, Columbus, uh, where the Attorney General's office is, I have on the wall a number of bills that I wrote in the U.S. Senate. And uh, 
one of the things I like to do is if school kids come in and, and they, they want to meet me or they want to see the office and, and, you know, I'll take them to that wall and there's a number of bills that I've had framed that I either wrote or I played a, a role in that I really cared about. And one of the things I tell them is that in each case, uh, I had a Democrat co-sponsor. I had someone uh, who uh, I knew cared about that particular issue. I mean, for example, Chris Dodd, uh, I found out uh, that he cared about children's health issues and he found out that I cared about children's health issues. And so, you know, we were able to, to, to work together. Uh, Jay Rockefeller, uh, Dem- oh, these are all Democrats, Democrat from West Virginia. Uh, you know, he cared about foster care and highway safety, both issues that I was one to be involved in. So we wrote some bills and did some things in that area. Dick, Dick Durbin, uh, you know, Dick and I, uh, while very friendly, uh, you know, probably far, far, we far, far, far apart on the political spectrum. But we f- found out that we had both had a passion to try to help people who had AIDS. And so I was able to, you know, find someone on the other side to work with. And, and I, that surprises people sometimes. Uh, but what I tell them is, look, if you want to get something done in the United States Senate, you have to learn to count to 60. Um, you, you pass a bill with 51 votes, but to get a bill up for debate, it takes 60. And so what that means is to get anything done, you're going to have to work across the aisle and try to find some common ground and, and you know, try to get things done by doing that. And I was always very and I remain very, very results oriented. Um, you know, we started every year in my office uh, with a focus on what we wanted to get passed and. We, we tried to try to work on that. There's another interesting reason, maybe not just a single reason, but another interesting thing that happened during your time in Congress was Iran-Contra, and you were actually on the committee. <laughs> Man, you're going way back then. Hey, you know, like, we have to do research for the show, right? But uh, the reason I bring it up is I found something interesting, and I wanted to ask you about it. Um, in some of the archives, you, uh, your questioning of Ollie North, who was the, uh, I believe, the colonel who, you know, was at the center of all that. Uh, your questioning of him was described as deferential. Now we're what thirty, thirty-five years removed from that now, and you know, I'm wondering how how would you sort of describe, you know, your time dealing with Iran Contra there? Yeah, I was the youngest member. I think I was the youngest member of Iran Contra. Um, you know, most people today don't even remember really what what that was, um, but it was it was it was an interesting time. Um, you know, it was the first investigative uh, body I'd been really been on. It was a joint committee of the Senate and the House. Um, you know, later on after that, you know, I would be on the Senate. Years later, I would be on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, I was also asked to be a manager, what they called a manager when I was in the U.S. House, of the first impeachment of a federal judge in, I don't know, 30, 40 years. So, you know, those were things that that uh, were kind of different uh, that I did when I was when I was in Congress. And look, I mean, your goal when you're doing an investigation like that is to try to find out what the truth is, what happened um, when you're the junior member of the panel. You get to ask questions last. Um, and so, you know, you're, most of the questions have been asked. And so you try to kind of fill in and, and, and hit questions that uh, maybe had not been asked or maybe had not been asked in a certain way, or maybe sometimes just, just, just to follow up questions. 
from Congress, you came back, you were LG for a term, and then you know, eventually moved to Senate, where you're probably most known for before being attorney general. You mentioned some of the differences between the House and the Senate. So I'm wondering, is there anything that you took away from the Senate that you maybe didn't take away from your time in the House? Well, you know, after I um, left the Senate in, in, in 2006, um, I taught school for a couple of years. I say I taught school. I was visiting professor at Miami and also at Ohio Northern and, and at Cedarville University. And, and one of the things that I would do a class period on the difference between the Senate and the House. Um, so I'll give you the abbreviated version. Um, you know, I think the biggest difference is that uh, the House is really controlled by the majority party. Um, they write the rule. Uh, they determine how long debate is going to be. They can determine, uh, in most cases, how many amendments are going to be allowed and even what amendments are going to be allowed. So. While being in the minority, uh, you certainly have a role and, and you can have some impact, uh, you can't really have as much impact in the minority in the House as you can in the Senate. Senate's very different. It's unlimited debate, and there's a lot of criticism of that. But what that means is that the minority cannot really be shut down very easily. Um, you, when most bills go to the Senate floor, you know, you, if you want to offer a, an amendment, you can do that. So much more empowering of the, of the minority party. And in the Senate, I was in the minority party for some time. I was mostly in the majority, but I was both. And I found that in the Senate, you can have significant impact, whether you're in the minority party or majority party. And, and a lot of it goes back to what we mentioned a minute ago, and that is that you really have to be able to count to 60 in the Senate. And so to put something together for a bill, to stop debate, to get a bill up to vote on, you have to be able to count to 60. And so that forces people uh, to, to work with the other party. Now, you know, people can criticize that. But the, the key, it seems to me, is to not lose sight of your principles, not to lose sight of your objectives. Uh, always keep them in mind, never compromise your principles, but being willing to get half a loaf or, or par partial loaf uh, of bread. And when you wanted the whole, but, you know, you thought you were improving the status quo if a bill was better than what we'd had before, you know, you, you, know, you would try to improve it as much as you can, but you would always, you know, be in a position where you're trying to improve things. And so, you know, that that was always my approach in the Senate. So they're, they're very different, very different bodies. Uh, you know, again, one of the things that the Senate does uh, is confirm judges. It, it confirms cabinet members. And so, again, that's that's a very distinct function that the Senate has and that the House does not have. Yeah, you bring up confirming judges. You were actually part of the gang of 14, right, that sort of preserved the yeah, judicial Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite interesting. Uh, my, my opponent in this race uh, for governor has, has criticized me for that, and uh, she does this to conservative audiences, and she's just dead wrong about it. I mean, what we ended up doing because of what we were able to do, and I was one of 14 uh, we were able, the net result was that we got two Supreme Court justices confirmed, uh, nominees of uh, President George Bush, and very, very proud of that. Uh, we broke the logjam. There was a number of circuit court judges that the Democrats were just totally holding up. And because of what we did on this group of 14, gang of 14, 
uh, we got a number of those uh, individuals confirmed. So I'm from a conservative point of view, it was a win, win, win. And I'm very, very proud, proud of that. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, she's got she's got that all wrong. So the reason that that all happened is because of the logjam for judicial confirmations. We saw that happen, you know, basically it flipped and the Republicans were doing it with Obama when Obama got into office. And I'm wondering, is that just kind of a circular thing that's going to happen from here on out? I mean, well, if you recall, they did, you know, the Senate did change some of its rules. This was long after I left. Um, and so, you know, you can I guess you can kind of look back and, and talk about the rules change. But, uh, you know, my decision to try to get something worked out uh, was my firm belief that you know, those judges that were nominated, conservative judges nominated by George Bush, uh, were sitting there and we couldn't get them out because of the Democrats. And what we were able to do in the group of 14, gang of 14, if you will, uh, is to break that log jam. So at that point, it was clearly the right decision. I'm very proud of it. So I want to talk about 2006 a little bit. And I'm curious why, you know, why do you think you weren't reelected in 2006? Well, I tell you, it's kind of funny, and I, I tell people this, but w when you start out in politics, you, you sort of think it's all within your own control, all within your own hands, uh, that if you work hard enough and you get out there and hustle, um, you know, you can, you can win. And that's really true uh, a lot of times at the local level, uh, that you can swim against the tide. I mean, you know, when I ran for county prosecuting attorney, it was a big Democrat year. I was a Republican. I knocked off a, an incumbent. Uh, and, and Fran, I did it by knocking on doors and campaigning and, and making our signs, going into the barn and silkscreen. Those were the days we used to silkscreen your, your signs and you'd go put those signs up. The, but when you go to start run statewide in a state like Ohio, that is really a swing state, uh, what you find is that there are things that you can control. You can control your own campaign. You can work hard. You can get a message uh, and, and do everything that you should be doing. But part of the result is determined by forces outside of you. And, and so, for example, when I was elected the first time to the United States Senate, it was, it was a year that uh, turned out to be, uh, 1994, it turned out to be a, a, a pretty good Republican year, a good Republican year. Um, and so I had the benefit in 1994 of, of the wind, so to speak, the wind at my back. Um, in 2006, uh, the wind was not at my back or any other Republican. The wind was in our face. And so, you know, did I run a perfect campaign? Well, I've never run a perfect campaign. So you can go back and, I guess, fault, you know, different things I may have done then, but ultimately, um, as, as I could in any campaign. But, you know, I think we ran a pretty good campaign, but ultimately, you know, it was not a Republican year and the wind was in our face. And, you know, that's frankly the main reason that we lost. Just as you go back and look at 94, and if you want to be objective about it, you, you, you could say, hey, Mike had the, you know, Mike DeWine had the wind at his back in that one, too. Like in our last break where we talked about Mike DeWine's sort of affinity for the filibuster. The institution of the filibuster. The institution of the filibuster. You, you'll actually get to hear him filibuster just a little bit in this next up upcoming segment. And I mean, I don't think that it 
I think he just was kind of reverting to campaign mode there. Yeah, I mean, that's literally what he talks about on the on the trail. So you kind of get a sense of what it's like to be at, you know, a county party dinner or like a whatever, you know. So. Yeah. He's been in politics long enough to know how to, I guess, um, what's what's the way to describe it? Pivot? Yeah, pivot. I mean, I guess just not, like, answer his own question, I guess. And not way. answer your question? Yeah. And, and I mean... Well, so what we wanted to talk about him with was when he got voted out in 2006. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff going on in the country at the time. But I think sort of it, it's apparent based on his, you know, reaction and how he's conducted himself since then that he upset the conservative base. There was that thing with the judicial nominees. He co-sponsored an assault weapons renewal of a federal assault weapons ban with Chuck Schumer, by the way. So um, he just kind of, he alienated members of the conservative base. And so he appears to have decided that he needs to do more to kind of shore up his base support. He got recently endorsed by what, what's effectively the Ohio chapter of the NRA. I mean, it's not technically, or it's not literally what it is, but uh, so now he's, you know, presenting himself as being very pro Second Amendment. And we asked him about, hey, did you change anything about the way you did this? We we tried to get him to kind of address that. And he clearly wasn't interested in talking about it. Yeah, especially after going from an F to an A rating. I mean, in a matter of what, eight years? It's interesting. I mean, in 2010, they endorsed his de- opponent, his Democratic opponent, Richard Cordray. Right. So. But so we did want to talk to him about, you know, 2018. Why are you running? Like, what do you want to do? And that kind of stuff. And, you know, he just he brought it up himself. All right. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Attorney General Mike DeWine. Have you changed your approach to campaigning or governing based on anything you learned about 2006? Well, not really. Uh, I mean, what's a, a race for governor is just it, it should be very different and it is very different. Uh, you know what John Houston and I want to do? And by the way, I'm, I'm delighted to have John on the ticket. And it's important not just for the election and making it easier to get elected because John is on the ticket. It's very, very important uh, for us when we start to govern. Uh, I don't think there's any, been anybody in, that's ever run for a lieutenant governor that I'm aware of, and that's myself included, uh, that had brought a background like John Houston. So he is a real player. He's going to be a major factor in our, in our administration, and so I'm, I'm very, very glad to have him on the ticket. What John and I are doing is we want to talk about things that impact the average Ohioan. And that's why when you go to a speech, uh, you were at a speech last night that, that, that I gave. And, you know, I talk about um, jobs. You know, when you run for governor, people always ask, well, what's the biggest question? What's the issue? I said, look, the, 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 the issue of jobs is always the most important thing in a governor's race in the state of Ohio. But today you can't talk about jobs without talking about the opioid epidemic and without talking about um, the cr- problem that we have with a, a, a lack of skills uh, and education for some folks, and that, which means that they cannot get a, a, a job in a 21st century uh, job. And so those are the two things that, that we have to attack. And so during this campaign, you're going to hear me talk a lot about jobs. You're going to hear me talk a lot about the opioid crisis and what I think we need to do. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about education. Um, you know, this opioid crisis is uh, the worst thing I've ever seen. Uh, I started as a county prosecutor. I was on Judiciary Committee in, in the Ohio Senate and, and, and in Congress. So, you know, I watched a number of uh, 
uh, times when we had drug problems, but we've never had anything like this. It's everywhere. Uh, it cuts across every economic group. Uh, we're losing 15 people every single day. Uh, our foster care system is bursting at the seams with kids. And we've got a large number of people out there who, who frankly, cannot pass a drug test and therefore aren't able to live up to their, their God-given potential. And so I put out a 12-point action plan, which I would invite anyone to, to look at. You can go up on our campaign webpage, um, and we spell out there what I will do as governor. I want to make it very clear, when I'm governor, this is what you can expect from Mike DeWine. And we talk about uh, treatment, we talk about um, prevention, and we talk about law enforcement. And the, and the thing I always talk about, uh, and the one I pick out of the 12 to talk about um, because you can't talk about all because you don't have enough time, but is the one where I say that when I'm governor of this state, uh, we will start in kindergarten in every school in the state, public, private, parochial, charter, and we're going to arm these kids with what they need uh, to avoid uh, going down the path of becoming addicted. And that doesn't include not just opioids. It would be any, any addictions. And the evidence clearly shows that you have to start early. Uh, I, w I would start in kindergarten, K through 12, do it every single year, something every year that's age appropriate, but also something every single year that has a scientific basis behind it. In other words, it's been already been proven to work, that we have evidence that if you do this, if you follow this curriculum, um, it, will, it will really arm kids to be much better positioned to avoid drugs. And it, so it's not, I think sometimes when I explain this, I, uh, I people get they don't quite understand what I'm saying because um, we're not just it's not so much that you're teaching kids about drugs as it is that you're teaching them about good decision making. It's what the the educators, sociologists call uh, emotional learning, uh, for example, social emotional learning. Um, it's about a lot of it is about decision making and how you approach things. Um, one of the commitments I have made uh, and that John Houston has made is that when we take office, uh, the other thing that we're going to do in every school building is we are going to have someone uh, with a mental health background uh, who's going to be available to the teachers and is going to be available so that kids can be referred there. Um, one thing that troubles me is not just the, the horrible tragedy of, of the gun, the shootings that are taking place in schools, but we're seeing a lot of suicides. Uh, you know, these things just break your heart uh, when you talk to the parents. And we just have to do a better job in trying to reach kids very early uh, if they do have mental health problems, let's reach them and let's let's intervene. And so I think a, a way to re reach these kids and to make sure that we're getting them early enough is to have someone who has that background in, in every school uh, in, in the state of Ohio. You know, it's interesting you bring up the gun debate. Uh, you know, you were criticized by NRA and uh, gun rights advocates for years for being, you know, for wanting too much gun control. Now you have the Buckeye Firearms endorsement. I'm wondering, where did that evolution kind of come in? Well, you know, you, have you gotten, I guess here's the question, have you gotten more conservative over time? Well, look, I, I think we're all a product of our our experiences. Uh, I think some of the, the votes uh, that 
were criticized uh, when I was in, in the Senate, uh, you know, were votes that at the time I thought they were the right things to do based upon the evidence I had and, and looking at it as a, as a, as a former prosecutor. Um, I think we've learned uh, that, you know, there are other things that are more important. I mean, for example, when we talk about schools and what should we do, and, you know, my heart goes out to parents. You know, my uh, children put kids, our grandkids, on a bus every day or they take them to school every day. And so as a parent, as a grandparent, the thought that someone could walk into that school and kill a bunch of kids is just a very frightening thing. And so anybody who's listening to this, you know, probably feels that, that, that same just kick in the gut feeling. Uh, I've tried to look at this as what is practical to do and that what we could do. And so I said, number one, uh, put a mental health person in every school what we find when you go back and look at the history of these cases and look at the history of these individuals who are the shooters, you find that they've had long-term, most of them have given clear indication of long-term mental health problems. And so maybe if that person had been reached at a much earlier age, something could have been done. So number one, we need mental health people in, in those schools. Number two, I'm going to continue as attorney general and I'm going to as, as the governor uh, do everything we can to have our criminal record system as accurate as we can in Ohio. We've come a long, long way over the last few decades uh, as far as its accuracy. The challenge is that there are 1,300, 1,300 places where this data is inputted. It comes from clerk of courts offices. It comes from common pleas courts. It comes from uh, municipal courts. And so there's 1,300. Of those 1,300, 90% of them are automated today. In other words, they're online. They can put them in. Much easier to put them in. Unfortunately, there's still 10% that are not. So as governor, one of the things I've said I will do um, is make sure that every, every one of these places has the ability to be automated. And some of these are small rural communities that simply do not have the money. Uh, to do it. I think that's an incumbent upon the state. If we're going to have a statewide uh, system, it's an incumbent upon the state to make sure that uh, every every entry point, all 1,300 entry points, it's easy to get the information in and that goes into the database. So, so a central database is, is, is second. Uh, I was asked some time ago, uh, frankly, after Chardon, uh, you know, what would I do if I was on a school board? Uh, and what I have said is that my priority would be to have a security officer there, uh, someone who is a presence in the school. But I understand some schools do not feel they can afford this. So I was asked the question, what would you do, Mike, uh, if you were in a school that w could not afford to do that? Uh, and, I, and would you arm teachers? And I said, well, you know, first of all, I'd want to make sure that that teacher was trained. Um, and, you, you know, if you found somebody who was an ex-police officer, ex-military, uh, you know, under the right conditions, that person, you know, could have access to a gun in, in, in a school. Uh, another thing that we have done uh, that we did right after the Chardon uh, tragedy 
is we made sure that all the school safety plans were up to date. Uh, at that point in time, they were being f filed uh, with, with, with no specific requirement other than that they were supposed to file a safety plan uh, with the Attorney General's office. We went back to see how many of them were actually filing, and then we found a large number of them were not filing. So we approached these schools and said, look, you need to file these. And then, then we put together a, a pamphlet, a booklet, so that any school in the state could kind of look at how you could put together a safety plan. These safety plans are important. Uh, it's not just important to have them. It's important to, that the mental health people in the community be part of the safety plan. It's important that the um, uh, law enforcement be part of the, the forming the safety plan and, of course, that the school is involved in the safety plan. It's also important that, this, that the school have drills based upon that school safety plan. So these are all things that uh, are, are imp very important. We are doing something else, and we're about to roll it out in the next couple few days, um, and that is uh, we will have online uh, videos uh, that any school teacher or any principal or anybody uh, in school can look at uh, if their school has not been able to have Alice training or, or training from the attorney general's office or some other training. They will be able to go up online and pull these videos down. It's just basically kind of an introductory course to how you try to avoid having an active shooter in the school and then what you do if, in fact, there is an active shooter in the school. So these are all very, very tangible things that I, I think, you know, will make our, our schools uh, safer. So you mentioned some of the criticism you've received from your primary opponent, Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. Uh, another thing that she's criticized you about, and I don't know if you've seen the ducks at the, the events across the state. I actually have not seen one in the wild. I've just only heard about it. I met the duck the other day. In fact, I met the duck twice, and uh, I tried to engage him in conversation, but uh, he, he, he did not. But he was a very pleasant duck, and uh, I, I, I had a good time talking with him. And look, I mean... <laughs> Things like that, I guess, are kind of, you just have to treat them as funny. I don't know, uh, you know, how to treat them any other way. It's some kid who has either volunteered or, or is being paid to dress up like a duck. And look, that's, you know, that's, we, we need to treat the duck with kindness. And I tried to, I tried to do that. And I just, I just kind of tried to joke with him as I, as I came in. But, you know, he had his script and the script was not to talk. And that's fine. So the, the yeah, duck yeah, is accusing yeah, yeah. you of ducking debates. Uh, so uh, there have been a couple of instances um, where, uh, I guess, you know, Mary Taylor has said that she would debate you anytime, anyplace. And obviously haggling about debates is part of the process. But why, why has that not happened yet? We have been on, uh, we've had really debates 12 different times, 13 different times by, by our count. Um, you know, you can call them debates. You can call them joint appearances. You can call them forums. Uh, but, you know, this is not like we have not been together. Uh, we have one coming up with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, where I suspect we'll be at the same table. Uh, I suspect there will be a video taken of it. So, you know, there's ample opportunity uh, for people to really, which is the most important thing. It's not what Mary wants or what Mike DeWine wants. It's what the public the public has a right to have a, a thorough debate on my vision for the state of Ohio, where I want to take Ohio, same way they have a right to know where Mary, Mary Taylor wants to take. Tragically, or sadly, I guess I should say, 
Um, you know, Mary is engaged, Mary Taylor is engaged, uh, the lieutenant governor is engaged in in a series of insults. Uh, she's insulted my family. I don't think that's ever happened to me in a, in a campaign. Of all the different campaigns I've been I don't remember any opponent ever insulting my family. Uh, she, ha- she has done that. And so, look, uh, we're going to continue to, to talk and, and talk about the issues. Uh, uh, you know, if you go to a speech that I give, um, you, you don't hear me talking about the lieutenant governor. What you hear me talking about is my vision for the future of the state of Ohio, where I think we should go and that's what I think the voters want us to talk about. I don't really think the voters want us to, uh, you know, when she engages in, in insults, that's just not, you know, she's demonstrating she just doesn't want to talk about the issues. And so um, that's kind of my 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 approach to this. But uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to continue to talk about uh, the issues that are important to the, to the people of the state of Ohio. I've got one more question. I, I actually want to go back to 2006 because I'm relatively new to the state, so I have to ask this. I've heard about a marijuana-laced banana. Um, I believe it was in a city club debate, and you were trying to refer to a marijuana-laced brownie and said marijuana-laced banana. Well, if I misspoke then, and now that you remind me of it, I do remember I misspoke. I didn't remember exactly what it was, but that you know, that's probably not the first time I've misspoken, probably not the last one. So, you know, you know, you, you may catch me saying something I didn't mean to say this campaign to. Well, the reason I ask that is because it kind of became this sort of gaffe and whatnot. And I think about that and I think about where we are 10 years later. And that seems so quaint, you know, like, oh, you know, Mike DeWine goofed and said marijuana laced banana. And I think of the gaffes that you see today or even the scandals that you see today. And I'm wondering, how has where have you seen politics go from the time where you started to where it is now? What is so different? I mean, is there is it a, is it a more partisan atmosphere? What's what's going on? Look, there? I, you know, uh, books have been written about this, and, and commentators can talk about this all the time. I, let me just say that for me, I'm really the same person. My I've always been a very results oriented person. I think what the voters want is people to fix problems, um, and that's what I've tried to do as attorney general. Uh, I'm very proud of the rape kits that we've been we've tested. We've tested over close to fourteen thousand of them, uh, pretty big percentage from the city of Cleveland. Uh, we've gotten matches on thirty six percent. The prosecutor told me that they, they, by the time they're done, they will have indicted over I think a thousand people in in. Cuyahoga County alone. And by the way, it's been a great partnership with the prosecuting attorney's office here in Cuyahoga County, with the city police department and with the, with the with the county sheriff's office. So I'm about results. I was about fixing the crime lab. Uh, we, we did that. Um, so when I talk about this race, you know, I think what people want to hear from me is how do you want to make government government work better? How do you want to make it more efficient? Uh, how do you want to you know, provide for a better opportunity for my kids. You know, that's really what our objective is and what we should be talking about. I mean, I look, I look at this state and think, this is a great state. Uh, we have so much going for us. We have an abundance of water that many states don't have. We now have natural gas that we can get out of the ground, and we're going to have the cheapest gas, natural gas in the world, which is going to give us a great competitive advantage over many other states that don't, just don't have that. And 
But we got these two big problems out there, and the opiate problem and the skills gap. And so what I'm going to talk about during this campaign is, you know, how we fix education, uh, how we fix the drug problem, how we make life better. And ultimately what, what drives me is, you know, people say, Mike, why are you running? And I think that I'm the best person to do this job. I think that I bring the experience, I bring the determination, I bring the passion um, to make this a better state for your kids and your grandkids to grow up in. And that's really why I run. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Ohio Matters. We really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you very much.